0: I want to see how many kids or adults in here can, can tell me what the, uh, the Maginot line is. Does anybody know what the Maginot line is? I know some kids in here are history buffs, and uh, some are even military buffs. So this has to do with military history. Um, and Noah really likes military history, but uh, I'm not even sure he knows what the Maginot line is. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's a French word. There. I'm sort of narrowing it down for you a little bit there. Does anybody know what the Maginot line is? Anybody? Anyone ever even heard of the Maginot Line? The Maginot Line was this line of fortifications that the French built after World War I. They built a whole long line of fortifications on their border with Germany. The intent was to prevent Germany from ever invading France ever again. And these fortifications were amazing. They were were built out of concrete There were bunkers, but they also had these concrete um, uh, uh, towers that came up out of the ground that had turrets on it so they could fire at the enemy. Um, The the underground bunker was absolutely amazing. It had electric trains that connected one bunker to the other. It was air-conditioned, which for that time was was quite a luxury. And so these underground bunkers called the Maginot Line, they ran for miles all along the border of France and Germany. It covered the entire border, and it was built with the intent that no one could ever invade France from Germany ever again. Matter of fact, um, it was so impressive that the French were very proud of their accomplishments. They'd actually poured most of their military spending into this line called the, the Maginot Line. And, um, and so they were very confident, they were very self-assured that the Germans could no longer come into France. That was after World War I. Of course, I think most of you know, that in World War II, it took Germany a grand, grand total of five weeks to deal with France, to come in and basically conquer France. What it was, they simply, they knew the Maginot Line was there. The Germans decided, we're going to outflank the Maginot Line. We're going to go through Belgium. And they came right down through Belgium. And the French, because they had spent all their money on the Maginot Line, actually didn't have the, the military um, equipment to deal with the ever-evolving uh, modern warfare that was happening in World War II. Well, I bring that up to simply say that the, the French fell victim to what many countries and many people have fallen victim to over and over and over again throughout history, and that is the issue of pride and self-confidence, self-assurance, and, and this, this, this belief that no one can do anything to me or nothing's going to happen to me because I'm self-sufficient in and of myself. And that was the deal with the French, this Maginot line. They thought no one could ever penetrate the Maginot line. It's ironic that it sits there today as sort of this, this testimony. Uh, you can go and visit it today, these, these bunkers, but they were never ever used. They never actually used the magic of these bunkers at all because Germany never invaded from that direction. And so it stands as a, as a monument to pride. Pride is one of the central themes in the passage we're looking at today. Today we're continuing our summer preaching series called A Summer in the Minors, which is a series of overview sermons, one sermon for each one of the 12 minor prophets. And so today we're going to be in the book of Obadiah. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want to. Um, Now why study the minor prophets? Because man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what the scriptures teach us. Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, even those books called the minor prophets that we sort of Uh, we sort of relegate to a status of not so important. They're not minor because they're less important. They're minor because they're smaller books. But they are just as important as any other part of Scripture because every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord is what we are to be living by. So we we go to the minor prophets as well. And so today we, we preach from the book of Obadiah. So turn there, turn to Obadiah. We're going to read the whole book because it's a short book. It's only got 21 Verses, it has one chapter, 21 verses. It matter of fact, it's the shortest of all the minor prophets. Matter of fact, it's the shortest book of all the Old Testament. It's the only minor prophet, by the way, that's not quoted in the New Testament. Obadiah is the only minor prophet who isn't quoted by one of the New Testament authors. Matter of fact, it's only one of six books in the whole Old Testament that's not quoted in the New Testament. We don't know anything about this prophet named Obadiah. There were 11 other people in the Old Testament named. Obadiah, but none of them could be the writer of this book because of the way chronology works out. Matter of fact, the word Obadiah simply means one who serves Yahweh, and some scholars think that was simply a title, a title given to various people in the Old Testament, including the author of this book. It was written as a prophecy aimed primarily at Edom, as we'll see here. Edom was a foreign nation, just like last week, Nahum. His prophecy was aimed primarily at Nineveh. Uh, It was written somewhere after the fall of Jerusalem, which is 586 B.C., and Babylon's attack on Edom, which was 530, 553 B.C. So there's about a 30-year window there when this book was written. And I hope, hope you guys, as we've gone through the Minor Prophets, you've gotten a little bit of a, of a survey of Israel and Judah's history. Because we've done this chronologically, intentionally. So you can see how, how things progressed in Israel and in Judah and, and how the, the Minor Prophets' messages fit into the historical setting. So please stand, if you would, as we read Obadiah. We're gonna, like I said, we're going to go ahead and read the whole book. All 21 verses of the book of Obadiah, and then we'll walk through it slower um, this morning after we read the whole thing. This is the word of the Lord spoken through um, the prophet Obadiah. Verse 1 The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? All your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so shall all, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau, stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this book, which, Lord, we know from the stats I read last week is the second least preached book in all the scriptures. I pray, Father, that we would be faithful to the word. Lord, there is a word for the church today. In this Old Testament minor prophet, we believe that every word that comes from your mouth is for our nourishment, and so we stand here with mouths open desiring to be fed, but God, our natural taste buds don't want the Word of God, so we need you to do some work in us this morning. May your Spirit make us ready to hear, open up our ears to hear, and may your Spirit grant me the grace to speak your Word carefully and accurately this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine imagine the scene with me. It's 586 B.C. You're a Jew, a citizen of Jerusalem. The Babylonians are sacking your city. They are killing and pillaging and committing all kinds of other atrocities that accompany ancient warfare. Somehow you make it outside the city, past the crumbling walls. The smoke in the air makes it hard to breathe. You see bodies piled high. The stench of death is in the air. You hear desperate screams and violent war cries. But then you hear another sound. It's the sound of laughing. The sound of taunting. You strain your eyes to to look and you notice a, a people standing on the adjoining hills "...watching Jerusalem burn. They're standing there like spectators, enjoying some theatrical performance or some athletic display. You know who they are. They're the Edomites, distant relatives of the Jews. But Babylon hasn't come for them. So the Edomites sit idly by and watch, watch as the once mighty Zion crumbles under the Babylonian pressure." But worse than merely sitting back and observing their brother's plight, some of the Edomites are haughtily shouting out, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Worse yet, you see some of the Edomites running down and stopping the Jews who were trying to escape and happily turning them back over to the Babylonian raiders. You know that God has brought judgment upon Judah for all of her sins, including the sin of pride. But what about these Edomites? What about them, Lord? Was God going to forget the violent pride of the Edomites? If he judged his own people, was he not much more going to judge the Edomites? Well, the answer is that no, God would not overlook the Edomites' pride and their arrogance. And yes, he would judge them. And that's exactly what this book is all about, this prophecy of Obadiah. This prophetic work is a prophecy spoken against the people of Edom. If we're going to understand this book, we need to understand that Edom was more than just another one of the nations that bordered God's people. So who was Edom? Well, Edom were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. You remember the story back in Genesis chapter 25. And we begin in verse 19 where you read of the birth of the twins Esau and Jacob born to to Isaac and Rebekah. We read that even before they were born, that there was this tussle. In the womb, they were fighting each other. We read in verse 22 of chapter 25 in Genesis. It says, The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So Jacob and Esau were were battling even in the womb. And God had given a prophetic word to Rebekah here saying that the younger one, because Jacob would be born after Esau, the younger one would be the one who would rule. Well, they were born, and you remember that Esau came out of the womb first, and he was red and hairy all over. And that's the reason that the word Edom became associated with Esau, because the word Edom in the Hebrew is similar to the word for red in the Hebrew. So Esau and Jacob were born, and later that, that word red it, it sort of attached itself to, to uh, Esau. Later you'll remember that it was red stew that Esau would desire so much that he was willing to part with his birthright and thereby despise the covenant promises of God that were tied to that birthright. Now you know the story, Jacob, he, he gets the birthright for, for a bowl of soup, and then, then later Jacob tricks Esau out of his father's blessing and then Esau would subsequently try to kill deceitful Jacob, and that would lead to Jacob running away out of the land of promise in order to save his own life. And from these two brothers came two nations Israel, from Jacob, Jacob would be renamed Israel, and the other one, Esau, the nation that came from him would be Edom. And so Esau and Edom are more than just another nation, they're very much related to the Jews. Uh, And they're more than another nation because there's great symbolism attached here to who Edom is. Esau, who would become Edom, was the one who was not chosen by God. He was the one who despised God. He was even hated by God. Indeed, we'll read in a few weeks in Malachi these words from the Lord. It says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated And this love for Jacob and this hatred toward Esau was not based, we read in Romans 9, was not based upon any good that they had done or had not done. We know from Romans 9 that God chose whom he chose for his own providential electing purposes. Knowing all that, we must therefore see that Edom is more than just another nation surrounding Judah. Edom represents those who are not of God, those who are indeed God's enemies. We talked last week about how God does have enemies. Edom represents those who are God's enemies, those who despise God and are therefore despised by God. There are two camps in today's prophecy. Those who are God's people, Jacob's people, Israel, and those who are God's enemies, Esau's people, Edom. And all people, even in this room, belong to one of two camps, either God's people or God's enemies. There is no in-between. I've said that many, many times. And if there's anything that stands as the mark, the characteristic of those who are not God's people, it is the sin of pride. The Edomites were a prideful people. They thought they were invincible, much like the Ninevites from last week and the French before World War II. They thought their position was unassailable. So, God, like a warrior, was coming against them. We read these, these words at the very beginning of this prophecy. It says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let her rise up for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. So, it says, Warrior language of God, He Himself is making war against the Edomites. God was going to bring them down, and He was going to bring them down because of their pride. So, the first point in today's message is simply this. Okay, number one, God opposes the proud. Pride is the original sin, it is the fertile ground out of which all other sins spring forth. It is the first of the seven sins that God lists that He hates in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 17. Pride is the supreme form of idolatry, for at its heart it's an attempt to ungod God. That's what pride is: an attempt to ungod God. Thomas Watson once said that pride is a spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain and intoxicates it. It's an idolatry. A proud man is a self-worshipper. Such were the Edomites, the people of Edom. They lived in the mountainous regions to the south and west of the Dead Sea in what's modern day Jordan. And their cities were carved into the mountains. Perhaps you've seen some of the remnants of the the Edomite society. Their capital was called Sila, which simply means cleft of the rock. But today Sila is known by its Greek name, which is Petra. Have you ever seen pictures of Petra? the city of Petra. The city of Petra has been carved into the rocks of the mountains. and It's gone over, it's had a lot of change over time because as the Greeks came in, they made certain changes and, and carved certain buildings in. But, but you still understand that that's where the Edomites lived. They lived in these mountains and their dwelling places were actually literally in the mountains. So they, they figured that they were impenetrable. For those in here who have never seen Petra or don't know what I'm talking about, if you've seen the third Indiana Jones, you've seen Petra, alright, where they go to that place where they find the um what was he looking for in the third movie the holy grail that's right so they go where they find the holy grail and there's this like temple built into a mountain they shot that in petra okay so just a little trying to be a little relevant here helping you get the picture of what petra is all right if an old indiana jones movie is relevant today anyway this was where they lived Edom didn't have the military might that Assyria had or that Babylon had, but they felt safe and secure in their geographical setting, and it had led them to a place of pride. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Notice something about pride. It's deceitful. The pride of your heart has deceived you is what Obadiah says. Pride is a deceiving sin. It flows naturally out of our unregenerate, out of unregenerate hearts. Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Pride has great powers of deception. It keeps you from seeing sin. It keeps you from seeing God. But like the father of pride before them, the Edomites were going to fall to the ground like lightning. Proverbs 16:18, you know the verse. Pride goes before destruction. In a haughty spirit before the fall. The Edomites were an ancient people. They had been there for a long time. Remember they came from Esau. And they thought they would never be brought down. But the graveyard of history is filled with nation after nation. And leader after leader who thought no one could bring them down. It seems that the more power and the more security. And the more economic success that a people have. The more they are prideful. And the more the human heart refuses to submit to God. So Edom was deceived, but God was going to bring her down. Verse 4, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. This is simply a reference, to, again, to their geography. They were way up high. They were like eagles who had their, had their nests up high in the rocks. That's what the Edomites were like. That's what this is referring to. Now, you may have heard this verse used differently. Um. This is not referring to the United States of America. I have heard teachers of prophecy get up and say, well, this is the only verse of Scripture that refers to the United States of America because it's talking about an eagle, right, and stars. And we have an eagle as our national bird and there's stars on our flag." There go. This is about the United States and the pride of the United States, and God will bring us down. Friends, let me just tell you, if you're listening to teachers like that, please stop. That is called eisegesis, where you read into the text what you want to see in the text. Instead of reading from the text, the intent, God's intent, original intent for the text. The intent of the text should drive us. Matter of fact, it should be what guides the sermon every Sunday. That's not to say that America won't maybe fall because of her pride, but it's because of her pride, not because of some secret message in Obadiah. Okay? So this passage here is simply referring to the Edomites. God was not only going to physically bring them down from the mountains to destroy them, he was figuratively bringing them down from a place of arrogance and pride. God can and will bring down any nation. The Edomites, those of Esau, those who are the enemies of God, are marked by their pride. Pride is the primary mark of those who do not belong to God. Remember, you're either in one of two camps— Those who are enemies of God or those who belong to God, his children. And just as pride is the mark of those who are God's enemies, so too should humility be the mark of those who belong to God. Those who are God's children, those of the Jacob house, God's elect, are those who have been brought into the kingdom of light by his grace through faith. Through Habakkuk 2.4, justifying faith. So think about faith for a second. By its very nature, faith is the opposite of pride. It's putting all your hope in God and not yourself. It's finding your refuge in Christ and not yourself. It's turning away from your self-sufficiency and totally depending upon God. So by its very nature, faith is the opposite of pride. Saving faith involves being broken. Broken of your self-sufficiency and your arrogant pride as we, re- as we sang about in one of our songs. Until that happens... Until, until God does that in the heart of a person, until that happens, then we're just like the Pharisee in Luke 18, recounting everything we had done and why God would be so blessed to have us on his team. But when we are humbled, we resemble that New Testament IRS agent who beat his breast and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Only when pride is overcome by the conviction of one's own sinfulness and wretchedness can conversion occur. If you have not been broken of your sin and your pride and your arrogance, my friend, you cannot have come to Christ. The only people that can come to Christ are broken people. But pride is something that even as believers, we still struggle with and fight. All of our lives, we'll have to be killing the remaining influences of our corrupt nature, including our pride. Someone once said, and I love this definition... Sanctification is the gradual triumph of humility over remaining pride. That's a wonderful definition of sanctification. Of course, sanctification is more than that, but it's at least that. The gradual triumph of humility over remaining pride. The Christian should be marked by humility and should see pride increasingly diminish. Pride produces unteachable Critical spirits, impatience, anger, self pity, anxiety, and more. And these things should be diminishing as humility triumphs over pride in our lives. So, humility is the primary mark of those who are in God's camp, the Jacob camp, and pride is the primary mark of those who are in the enemy camp, the Esau camp, the Edomite camp. And God must judge pride by his very nature, he must resist the proud. Why do I say you can't be converted without being broken first? Because the scriptures say God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, the broken, the contrite. Verse five, we look at God's comprehensive judgment here against Edom. If thieves came came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged his treasure sought out. Well, this is basically simply saying that God's judgment is going to be so comprehensive there ain't going to be nothing left. You know, other types of, of calamity that might come upon them, thieves and stuff like that, they may be able to recover from, but they're not going to recover from God's judgment. They're going to be left stripped bare. I don't know if anybody in here has ever been, had stuff robbed from you. A couple of times our van has been broken into when we were at home and people have taken stuff out of our van. Um, I think once they, one time they stole a nebulizer My daughter's nebulizer, but then they leave other things in there that are just as valuable, if not more valuable. I think when they stole the nebulizer, they left the the cord behind that you needed to use it with. It's just crazy. So I don't know if some really asthmatic robber really needed a nebulizer that day or what, but just, you know, there was still stuff in the van, and we recovered. It was no big deal. When I was in college, though, I came back from working the summer in North Carolina, and I and two other college students, we had rented a storage bin where we kept all of our stuff and And we got back, and one of the guys says, hey, I need you all to come down to the storage bin. So we go and we meet, and there is a hole that's been cut into the side of our storage bin, and there is nothing left. I mean, there is absolutely nothing in that storage bin. I mean, I think they actually took a broom to it when they were done and just swept up the dust. So they, you know, that's what it was like. It was just everything was gone, completely gone. And they took things that were totally worthless to them, things like my high school memorabilia and stuff like that, things that meant something to me, but nothing to them. And after that experience, I felt totally violated, and so low. You know, someone had taken something from you and utterly brought distress into your life as a result of it. That's what's happening here. God is going to come in and wipe them out totally. It's not going to be some little thing they're going to just bounce back from. Notice some other characteristics of pride in this text. We've already seen that pride is deceptive. But notice also that pride, because that its very hard, it puts men above God, Pride leads us to fear men and put our hope in men. That's what Edom did. But their faith in their fellow man proved to be their undoing. Verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. They've been double-crossed. Pride foolishly leads us to put our hope in men instead of God. And I even see that in the church people are broken and hurt by the way someone even in the church has treated them. My friends, one of the reasons it's hard for us to overcome those type of situations is because we put our hope in men. We want to be liked by people. We want to be treated well by people. And then we get stabbed in the back and it seems like all life falls apart. But you know what? If we find our, our hope and our comfort in Christ alone, then you know what? When people hurt us, we'll be able to recover a whole lot quicker. That pride that's in our heart, that remains even in the believer, tends to want us to put our, our hope in people. It tends to elevate people to, what, to the place that only God should have in our life. God is our sufficiency. Not people, and even husband's wife, not even your husband or your wife. But God is your sufficiency. We've already seen that, as I said, that pride is, is deceptive. But we also see that pride is blinding. When it says here that you have no understanding... The NIV translates that you will not detect it. The, the, um, the Holman Christian Standard Version translates it this way. He will be unaware of it. The idea here is blindness. The Edomites are blind to the traps that are being set for them. So here is another characteristic of pride. Not only is it deceptive, not only does it lead us to put our hope in men, it blinds us to what's really going on. It blinds us to the truth. Rarely does a prideful person see his or her pride in the danger of that pride. We always see other people's pride, don't we? Friends, as believers, we continually battle against this lingering pride, and we need to ask God to show us, open our eyes to our own pride, because pride by its very nature is hidden. And we need help seeing it. We need to ask God to show it to us. But beyond that, we need our brothers and sisters to help us see it. And that's not real comfortable, is it? But that's the way the church should work. We should be helping each other see those remaining sins in our life and helping each other overcome those remaining sins in our life, we should be growing in sanctification together. So as humility triumphs over pride, that's a community project. The triumph of humility is not a private matter, it's a community matter. So I need you holding me accountable and showing me where I'm struggling and acting prideful and you need me sharing that with you. God is allowing the blindness of the Edomites to lead them into destruction. Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declare, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau shall be cut off by slaughter? Here we see yet another characteristic of pride. Pride puffs up and it inflates our own view of our own wisdom and our own strength. Edom was putting its hope in its wise men and in its mighty men. Now, at first glance, you might be thinking that God is not judging Edom for false worship like he had in some of the other prophetic works we read, where God was judging the nations for their idolatry. But in reality, the idolatry on display here in Edom is the maximum type of idolatry, the idolatry of self. So God is judging them for their false worship. It's just the worst kind of idolatry. And God does indeed oppose the proud. The proud are his enemies, according to the Scriptures. But we also see in this little book that God's people are opposed by the proud. God's people are opposed by the proud. God was judging Edom for their pride, and their pride was on great display as Edom mistreated the people of Judah. The people of God will always be mistreated by the, by the proud. Those blinded by their own proud will direct the bulk of their ill will towards the people of God. If pride is the enemy of faith, then you understand why. Why? And so I think sometimes we go through life and maybe someone says something ugly to us because we're a Christian or we're on Facebook or whatever, or maybe you're out witnessing and someone's ugly to you. Understand that that's just pride fleshing itself out in their life because the prideful people hate people of faith. Pride hates humility. And so when you tell a person, you know what? You have to understand that you're a sinner, that you're wretched, that you're in desperate need of someone outside of yourself to save you. Pride hates that message. I can't stand that message is what the, the, heart, the prideful heart says. "Who are you? I, the, the gall of you to tell me I need to be saved, to tell me I'm a sinner. I mean, recently I had that experience where someone was just just appalled that I called them a sinner. I mean it's, just, it's, it's surprising, you, I mean, you kind of get into this kind of this rhythm of the Christian life where you just assume everyone knows that, right? Doesn't anyone just know they're a sinner? And then you tell someone, oh, well, that's because you're a sinner. Woo! That's pride. That's pride. And pride will bite back with vicious vitriol against that statement, against that assessment that we're sinners in need of salvation. God's people are always opposed by the proud We see here that the Edomites hated God's people and their hatred was on display as Jerusalem fell. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. So the finality of God's judgment was set because Edom's violence against his people. Well, what had they done? Well, first of all, they had stood by idly and watched as as Judah was attacked. Verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates. You cast lots for Jerusalem, and you were like one of them. They should have come to the aid of their brothers. They should have defended them. But instead, we read that they acted like the Babylonians. They weren't actually the ones attacking Jerusalem, but the fact that they just stood back and allowed it to happen, the fact that they did that showed that they were actually part of the enemy camp. You see, pride puts our interest above others. That's how God's enemies act. But that should not be so for the Christian. Philippians two four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. The Edomites had failed to be their brother's keeper, and not only that, they enjoyed and gloated over the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse twelve. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice. Over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin? Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Let's pause right there. Do you see that there's something in the prideful human heart that finds joy in other people's distresses? That's another characteristic of pride. Why is that? Why does pride lead us lead one to take pleasure in another person's misfortune? I think it's because it helps us to overlook our own inadequacies and failures. If I can find someone who's worse than me, it makes me feel good. That's pride. If you're honest, you all fight it. Well, at least we don't parent like that family. Well, at least our church doesn't do what that church does. Oh, my goodness. At least my marriage is smooth compared to that one. We, we find a certain amount of joy and satisfaction and sinful balm in looking at others' distresses. And I think if we're honest, we all have to fight it. It should have no place in the Christian's heart. It should have no place in the Christian's home. And it should have no place in the Christian church. Not only did the Edomites gloat and rejoice and boast over the calamity of Judah, they themselves took advantage of Judah's predicament to loot Jerusalem. They actually turned over escaping Jews also to the Babylonians. We read in continuing in verse 13, Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity, and do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. This is what the Edomites were doing. So Jerusalem had fallen Prideful Edom had taken advantage of it. The proud always opposed God's people. But as for Judah, they, God's people, they had been brought low. You see, the pride of Israel and Judah, it had to be judged too. And the way God providentially chose to judge the pride of his own people, Judah and Israel, was through a more prideful and sinful people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians or even the Edomites. So I want to add another point now this morning that that doesn't necessarily jump off the pages of this book right now, but it's a, a theme that sort of runs through the whole of the Minor Prophets, and it's this. God uses the proud to humble his people. God will use the proud to humble his people. The sacking of Jerusalem wasn't the end of God's people. Ultimately, God's people are those of faith anyway, and they would be delivered. But God had used prideful Assyria, He had used prideful Babylon and was now using prideful Edom to judge his people and, yes, humble his people. My friends, God will use the proud to humble those who belong to him. How should the Christian react when he's mistreated by a prideful person? Well, we're told in Scripture to react with humility. God may allow mistreatment to flow into your life to grow you in the area of humility. God can and will use the proud to humble his people. Unfortunately, I see some quote-unquote defend the Christian faith in a proud and haughty manner that's totally inconsistent with true humility. How are we to react when we're mistreated? Romans 12 tells us. It says, first of all, that that passage begins with the Apostle Paul telling us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And then we read these verses in verse 14 of Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with with, with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible... You see, the evil perpetrated against the believer should actually cause his humility to increase. God will indeed use the proud to humble his people so that when we're mistreated, our first reaction for the believer isn't, okay, defend myself. Everyone needs to know that I'm actually the one in the right here. That is a prideful and haughty response. The response of the, those who truly are God's people is, Humble reliance upon God to be our defender. 1 Peter 3, 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. When we react in humility, that's a blessing to us. Matthew 5, 11. we read this earlier. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad. I mean, really, how many of you are really glad and rejoicing when you get mistreated? The only reason we're not is because we're not the kind of people that we're called to be yet. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Don't you see, God takes the the vitriol meant against us, against his people, and he turns it on, on its head and makes it into a blessing for us. It becomes a sanctifying experience. When we're mistreated by prideful people, we are to leave it in the hands of God who judges justly and thereby allow room for his wrath. In turn, we will be blessed and we will grow in humility, and we need not worry, God will handle the proud. Matter of fact, this text now broadens from the pride of Edom to the pride of all the nations. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. The day of the Lord. There's that phrase again. I'll remind you that the prophetic works of the the minor prophets and all the prophecies of the Old Testament are oftentimes like mountain ranges. The prophets looking at it as one prophecy Okay, and some of the things that this prophecy is speaking about are, are nearer, things that are happening now, but some are things far off, and the day of the Lord is oftentimes multi-layered, and that's what the day of the Lord is here as well. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountains, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. This drinking is referring to the drinking of the cup of God's wrath. Remember, as Romans 12 teaches us, God will pour out his wrath upon all unbelievers, the proud and the arrogant. He will not forget the sins of his enemies. He will make his enemies drink the cup of his wrath. The proud, the enemy camp, the Esau tribe whom God hated, they would not escape and they would feel the full force of God's judgment. But as we have seen before, the day of the Lord brings not only judgment, It brings salvation, verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. Now that phrase, those who escape, it may be so in your translation, could be translated deliverance. But in Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance and it shall be holy. There are those who will be saved, those who have humbly turned to God away from self and putting faith in him alone. Mount Zion is always the place where Yahweh dwells with his people. Yet here is Jerusalem being sacked So this prophecy was foreshadowing a greater Zion, a new Jerusalem. It was foreshadowing the Deliverer who would come from God himself. He would be God with us, the God-man, Jesus. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the new tabernacle. He's the new temple, and he's the new mount of God. God was going to punish the proud, but those who come humbly cast themselves by faith on the Messiah would be saved. From our New Testament perspective, we can see how much larger the fulfillment is than what Obadiah or any of the Jews of his day could have seen. The people of God is not limited to the Jewish remnant, but now reaches out to embrace all who trust Christ, Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, not only is the people of God larger than Obadiah could ever foresee, but the fulfillment of the promised land as well is bigger, and the fulfillment of God's children reigning with God forever in his kingdom is much, much, much bigger than Obadiah could have ever imagined. Which leads me to our final point. Number four God graciously exalts the humble, and the humble are his people. God graciously exalts the humble, and the humble are his people. Verse seventeen again, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. It says here the house of Jacob, and then it talks about the house of jo- Joseph. Well Joseph, friends, he wasn't part of the tribe of Judah. this is referring here to a, a fuller group of people, all of God's people, all of God's people who are united to Christ, the true Israel, the obedient son, all of those who are united to Christ will see upon his second coming that he will deal with the enemies. He will burn and consume them. But on that day, those who are united to Christ will be exalted, for we will possess the earth and reign with Christ forever. Verse 19, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's The kingdom. Christ came announcing that the kingdom was at hand, and it's an already-not-yet reality, already here for those who are united to him, and coming yet still when the proud will finally be vanquished, and the humble and the meek will inherit the earth. Those of faith, the humble, have become heirs to the kingdom. For we have been united to Christ in his death, and in his burial, and in his resurrection. And we have been raised with him, then we too are seated with him in the heavenly places and are co-heirs with him. And we await his return so that we may come into our inheritance once for all. And at that time God will exalt his children, those of faith, those who are humble. My friends, we should be growing in that humility every day. We should be becoming who we already are. James 4.10 Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. So let me close with two words to the believer this morning. Believer, be praying this morning that the Lord will increase your Humility. Myself, as well as you, are oftentimes blind to our very own pride. Pray that the Lord will open your eyes to your own pride. Pray that God will use his church to open your eyes to your own pride and that he will do a work in you to live humbly. And as James tells us in the passage we read earlier, we don't need to be pursuing the world. If we pursue the world, we are the enemy. You're acting like the enemies of God. He who is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Pride leads us to go after the things of men and to feed our own fleshly desires. But believers are not to live that way. We're not to pursue the world. Instead, we are to ask the Lord to root out pride in our heart. And to the unbeliever here this morning, I beg you to turn from your self-sufficient pride. Turn from your Maginot line. It will not hold. The wrath of God will burst through that line. God won't have to go around it like the Germans did. Whatever you're putting your confidence in this morning that's outside of God, whatever you're trusting in outside of God, whether it be your own good works, whether it be your church attendance, whether it be who you're affiliated with, whatever it might be, whatever you're putting your confidence in that you think somehow you can stand before a holy and wrathful God and say, God, I deserve to come on in and be with you. My friends, you are fooling yourself. It is a Maginot line, and you will die on the day of judgment. And you will die forever on the day of judgment. Turn from your pride. Humbly cast yourself upon Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Christ came, died a bloody death on the cross to absorb the wrath of God, the wrath against pride for all those who put their faith in him. So this morning, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, I beg you, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I think if we're all honest here this morning, myself included, there are so many areas of pride, so many outposts of that Maginot line that are still standing erect in our hearts. Things that we put in our confidence in that's outside of you. And God, I think if we're honest, we realize we we fall into pride so easily. We begin to think much of ourselves, begin to think much of our church, begin to think much of our marriage or our kids or whatever it might be. And though pride or humility, I should say, Lord, though humility is not self-loathing, at the same time, humility is being honest about who we are. We are wretched individuals in desperate need of your mercy every day. So, God, I pray that you'd help us to be honest. Pride is so deceitful. I know there are some in here this morning that are saying, Well, I'm glad I've dealt with pride. Pride is so deceitful. So, Father, I beg you, Lord, in all of our hearts, every single soul in this room this morning, that you would help us to see our pride. And there be any in here, Lord, who do not know you, who've never bowed their knee and confessed Jesus as Lord, I pray, Father that they would understand this morning that they are in a perilous place. They are standing behind fortifications that will not stand on the day of judgment. Father, we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.